Hello, I'm Stuart Chittenden, and this is Lives, a conversation featuring fresh voices and diverse perspectives on culture, community, business, and more. My guest today is author and poet Cassandra Montag. Our conversation is being recorded by Zoom. Cassandra Montag grew up in rural Nebraska and now lives in Omaha with her husband and two sons. She holds a master's degree in English literature, and her award-winning poetry and short fiction has appeared in journals and anthologies, including Midwestern Gothic, Nebraska Poetry, Prairie Schooner, and Mystery Weekly Magazine. She is the author of a poetry collection, Chorus of the Underground Sea, and two novels, After the Flood and Those Who Return. Her work has been published in 15 languages and has been optioned for film and TV. Cassandra, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. My wife and I were in the audience at LitFest, and this, of course, was pre-pandemic. So this is Omaha LitFest. So I think it was 2019. You were reading from After the Flood, and you said something about the origin or part of the origin to the story emerged around the time that you were pregnant and this That's idea right. of water kept coming to you. Yeah. So I, I wonder if you wouldn't mind just perhaps just sharing a little bit about, um, you know, what after the flood is in terms of its, its plot and its context and the origin of that story for you. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So after the flood is um, it's a post-apocalyptic novel that takes place in um, in the future after this global flood has, um, you know, taken over the earth. And the story really focuses on um, a mother and she has two daughters. And one of her daughters, you know, she's trying to care for during this, you know, during this catastrophic time. And then her other daughter has been taken from her. So it becomes this quest novel where she goes on this journey to try to rescue her other daughter. So it really just follows her on that, you know, on that um, journey. And along the way, she She's trying to cope with both the loss of her daughter that she's been separated from, but also the loss of the earth and everything that was once um, really taken for granted in, in her life. How the idea for the story came to me is that, um, like you mentioned, I was I was pregnant with my first son at the time, and I started to have this, you know, this recurring nightmare, really. It was sort of like a pregnancy nightmare that I would have you know, maybe like once a week or so. And the the nightmare was that I was, you know, in the house that I was living in, in the dream. And this massive wave of water, almost like a tsunami, was just coming across the prairie, you know, coming across Nebraska, coming toward my house. And there was this really visceral sense of everything will be changed. Everything will be changed from this point forward. And, you know, on one level, I think the dream was really symbolic of all the change happening in my life, you know, becoming a mother. 
But then it also, I think, had just like a lot of anxieties with the way the world is changing right now. There are so many changes that I think a lot of people are anxious about. So it felt like this was a story that could have those sort of dual um, topics, I guess. You know, the very personal about motherhood and family life, but then also sort of the larger implications of what's happening in the world around us and what are some of our anxieties about what could be lost there. This might be a really small detail, but the artifacts of modern living have been destroyed. And so what once were skyscrapers are now submerged. There are occasions when various protagonists actually dive down to the top of these and, and can see skeletons and, and the ephemera of office life and, and that sort of right. thing. Um, so that's the nature of it. So therefore, items such as books are also hard to come by. That's right. Mm-hmm. Um, and Myra, the mother, teaches one of her daughters, Pearl, how to read, and you specifically reference Edith Wharton's House of Mirth. Yeah. Of all the literary works you could have chosen, you chose that one to specify. And I'm curious, why did you choose that book in particular? Yeah, that's a that's a great question. So I, you know, I read Edith Wharton a lot in high school. She was one of my favorite authors in high school. And and I actually have to confess that I don't remember a lot of the details of House of Mirth, but I just remember so much of, you know, with Edith Wharton's works that it felt like she was often writing about protagonists where, again, change is at play and um, power dynamics are always shifting. And, you know, and on this small boat, there is um, there are a lot of power dynamics between the people who are trying to figure out different ways to survive you know, in a time period where everything is shifting, where literally the ground under their feet is gone. And that was, I think that's why I loved Edith Wharton when I was a teenager, because as a teenager, at least for me, there were a lot of moments where I felt like the ground underneath my feet had given way and I couldn't get like a firm foundation. It felt like there were so many choices coming at me, so many possibilities. And so, you know, rather than there being like a particular plot point, it was more of that that sensibility and that sense that Edith Wharton gave me. Um, you know, I could relate to that when I was that age. So that that's the reason, yeah, that I included it. Cormac McCarthy has this quote that books are made of other books. And that, you know, we absorb this storytelling and all the favorite books from our childhood. And, um, you know, I, I do think certain details come out then later when we're working without us fully even realizing it. As a reader, of course, I, I get to own my own sort of subjective reading, but you're the author of the work and, and you have some intention behind it. And I, I'm thinking about the names that you chose in After the Flood and not just the names of the people, but also the militia groups. Uh, Lost Abbots. Yeah. Lily Black was another. Um, but the name of ships, too. And so the main vessel that Myra and her daughter Pearl travel on is called Sedna. And it's named right. after this warring, vengeful uh, goddess of the sea right. uh, who's been slighted by her parents. And I, I wonder if you wouldn't mind speaking a little bit about the choice of names and, and yeah. how perhaps they were presenting a certain aspect of identity. Right. Yeah. No, that's a great point. Because I did put um, some thought into some of those different names. You know, like you mentioned with Sedna, that was, you know, a very, a very loaded name um, from this ancient story about a daughter who has been betrayed and who becomes like this vengeful sort of goddess. And I, with that in particular, I was wanting to work with, you know, what are our ideas about nature? You know, our ideas that nature is indifferent to us, that nature is loving toward us, that it in some ways is actually vengeful. Sometimes when, for instance, we talk about environmentalism, um, 
all of those topics can become loaded based on what are our sort of preconceived notions or what are our beliefs about the earth. And, you know, when you look through ancient literature and indigenous storytelling, there's also, you know, different um, presentations of not just how do humans feel about earth, but is there a sense of this living being responding to us? And so I wanted to kind of play with that idea, um, you know, with them naming the ship Sedna, because I think there's a passage in the book where almost the flood itself is presented as a vengeful goddess of rejecting, you know, which also harkens back to the Noah myth in the Bible, you know, this idea of wiping out humanity. And um, the book is by no means wanting to make an argument about any of that, but it's just wanting to sort of remind people of these different ways of thinking about, you know, the earth. And so, you know, with some of the other names, some of the other names also have sort of religious connotations. I think you mentioned the lost abbots, and that's another sort of theme in the book. And that also goes back to throughout history, religion has um, guided people and how they live their life and how they recover from trauma at times, how they try to make sense out of seeming chaos. And so that's something that a lot of the characters in the book are also trying to do. They've lost so much, so much feels chaotic, and they're trying to discern meaning. And so there are some different threads of religion and different ways that people are trying to create meaning out of chaos. And so, so yeah, some of the names, uh, you know, are trying to have like a little bit of a thematic thread or a little bit of a connection there. And then I would say the other influence of names would be um, that the book is in some ways a Western because it's very much this quest novel. And so some of the, the names, particularly the female characters, are sort of like traditional Western sort of names like Pearl and Rowena and Myra. Those are all um, historically Western names. Yeah. Heading back to what used to be home Passing by those little towns I know so well Stopping for gas and then I'm behind the wheel again Driving this like a spiritual cleanse Where every mile is a new beginning And every bend holds a new end Eyes on the road, don't lose control I'm speeding fast to chase my soul I'm driving to get away It's interesting to read your work in some ways as an outsider and to feel as if I am watching you through the book work through and explore your own attitude as an author, as a human being towards motherhood. And I felt as if I was witnessing some ideas around motherhood connected with sacrifice and what do we prepare to sacrifice of ourselves as mothers and what else would we sacrifice as a mother? Um, and then a sense of identity as, as a mother, like how much does that subsume a different identity as, a, as an individual? And then uh, I also was thinking about this idea of perpetual renewal and this constant breaking and pain, but then this uh, healing and reappraising and reemergence, and it's, it seems to be quite cyclical. So these are things I was reading along with, I felt, as I journeyed on this quest. It, for me, it almost was like an objective observer as a, as a quest into motherhood. Mm, um, yeah. 
So that's a feeling I had reading the novel, but it gives me a chance to ask you about what were you trying to explore as a mother and about motherhood in, in right. the book? Yeah, no, that's a, that's a really good point. And I think all of those things you mentioned, you know, I, I did want to be there. Like you mentioned sacrifice and identity. And, and I love that you mentioned also this sort of almost cyclical thing of, you know, rebirth, like being broken and then healing and rebirth and, uh, you know, this certain level of change because, I see so much of of life as being that kind of struggle of growth. And part of growth is that, you know, sense of that you're being sort of reformed, you're responding to your circumstances. And that that is a very painful um, process. For me, motherhood has really brought that to the surface. For one thing, I mean, obviously it can be very challenging to try to to parent and help another person grow and because of the the sacrifices involved in that. But as you watch your children change, it can also be very inspiring. I mean, I think that my own kids have inspired me so much, just seeing how brave they can be going into new circumstances. I mean, even during the pandemic, you know, watching how they've handled all of the changes that have been thrown at them. Um, we've talked to, I feel like there's a lot of, you know, national conversation about dealing with uncertainty and kids' lives are always uncertain. You know, they're not in charge of, you know, um, what's going to be cooked for supper, where they're going to, you know, go to school, all these sort of major choices that make up their lives. Um, other people are in charge of that and they're in uncertainty and yet they still bring this level of joy to their life. And so, you know, that's one thing that um, is part of that idea of that cyclical sort of rebirth is going through these struggles or brokenness or disappointments or uncertainty and being able to emerge with some um, level of joy intact is something that I wanted to explore. You know, and I think another thing with the the idea of, you know, motherhood and that I wanted to bring to the book is it was partially also born out of my love for my children and my fear of losing them. You know, because in the book, Myra has already lost one of her daughters and she is very scared about losing the other one as well. You know, I think for most parents, that's one of their greatest fears, the the possibility that they, they could lose their child, that their child would die before they do. It feels very unnatural. I think a lot of books for authors are their ways of working through some of their deepest fears. And I wanted to see if Myra were to lose one of her daughters, how can she come out the other end and still be a whole person? That was something I really wanted to explore. Without giving the ending away, it felt to me simultaneously inevitable, necessary, and still surprising. And so I'm wondering, again, without you know, giving the ending away to, to those that haven't read the novel, which I, of course, encourage people to do, did that ending always have that form for you or did it change for you as you wrote the novel? Yeah. Yeah. That's a good question. Cause that's, that's always hard when you're writing a novel, you know, the ending, like you said, it has to feel inevitable and yet a certain degree surprising, you know, it has to still feel like, you know, I didn't quite expect it to be exactly in this way, um, but it feels right. Yeah. Without giving too much away, I did know that there was a certain loss yet to come for Myra that she was going to have to contend with, but that so much of the quest was giving her sort of the emotional tools to deal with that that was waiting for her at the end. So I did always know that the end would have, um, you know, this certain degree of, I would say, a loss or a a dark thing that she's having to handle, but that the, um, I'm not sure if you'd call it the silver lining of it or, or what, but like the the fact that she, um, 
she had acquired the sort of necessary emotional resources to cope with it and to have hope on the other side of it. So yeah, I did have that always in mind, but it was always kind of about making sure I crafted her journey in such a way that she goes through sort of this character arc, this emotional transformation um, where she is able to meet that ending, you know, which I, again, I think is so much of our lives is trying to gather the sort of emotional resources that we can meet what is always waiting for us, you know, whether it be the next day or a week later or a year later that we're, you know, getting stronger and growing in those ways. This may be a smaller question, but maybe there's more behind this. I'm curious why Pearl, the daughter, had such an affinity for snakes. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, so I had, you know, when I was doing research for the book, um, I was, you know, watching documentaries about different sort of indigenous tribes who live in the water and live on houseboats. You know, one in particular is like the Baja tribe that um, lives, you know, along the Pacific. And I, I, when I was watching this documentary, I had seen these children living in houseboats and living on the water, and they had snakes wrapped around their wrists like bracelets. And, you know, it was such a, this, you know, incredible image that, you know, these children were living with such this, you know, affinity for nature and animals, and that there wasn't this division between humans and animals. It was much more intertwined. And I wanted to portray that in this new flooded world, those sort of barriers and boundaries between the human, you know, the modern human world and the animal world have been broken. And so that's what Pearl represents. She represents the next generation that is living in a new way with nature. This may be a great segue into Chorus of the Underground Sea. I think we should talk about the title in a minute, but the book's first poem is I Prefer Broken Things. I feel like in some ways that encapsulates a lot of not only what's in the book, but I think perhaps about those topics that fascinate you. And I don't know yeah. if that's accurate, but if it is, you know, what's happening there? Yeah, no, that's a, a really good point. And it is accurate. I mean, I do think that's a fascination I have. I'm, I, you know, I'm really drawn to imperfections. I'm drawn to people and places that aren't pushed and perfect. Um, and I, yeah, it's such a good question. Like, why, why is that? Maybe because it feels true to me that when I, when I get to know someone or any of us, when we get to know someone really intimately and closely, we know the 
the disappointments in their life, the traumas, the difficulties they faced, and how that person continues to, to move forward and to try to be their best self is just incredibly moving to me. And so I think that's why I have that fascination. And I think also, you know, so much of life is um, there can be, you know, with the passage of time, there's aging, there's deterioration. You know, I think of when I drive down the highway and I see those old farmhouses, you know, that are just sort of slowly um, crumbling into the ground and how, to me, that's what I see as um, such a big part of life that's maybe not presented in the more polished images that we get, whether it be on the news or TV or Instagram or things like that. And so I think literature has always been that place to be a little bit more real about, about those things and to um, provide and make a space for saying that things can be broken, but they can be good too. And that not everything has to be about fixing everything, that we can live with like a certain level of acceptance um, over things that have been difficult or things that aren't um, in pristine, perfect shape anymore, I guess. Yeah. And I want that, like my work to give that kind of acceptance that there's still so much beauty in that. Um, Yeah. It doesn't have to be perfect. A lot of the poems spoke to that idea that it's not about fixing anything. And in fact, much of life, much of nature, much of our existence, much of our dreams, our myths, the stories we tell are all about the uncertain and those aspects of existing as a human that have to revolve around mortality and spheres that over which we have no control whatsoever. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. And that's a good word for it. The spheres where we have no control. Like you said, yeah, we can't always fix it. In our modern life, we, we can be so focused on goals and accomplishments and like fixing everything and making it all better. And that there's a lot of compassion, I think, for, you know, just being with someone, you know, when they do feel broken and when things aren't working out and um, accepting that for that time, you know? Yeah. I hope this just doesn't seem trite, but there seems to be just a clear connection to water in some way. Right. Um, and certainly in your work, there is an attraction, and you've talked about this, some compulsion you have towards what I would regard as elemental to right. existence. Yeah. And um, so we can explore that in a minute, but clearly water seems to be a feature that draws you maybe a good way to ask you to talk a little more about that is to reference what I'm imagining is a picture of the River Platte maybe on your website. Oh, okay. Yeah, that is true. Yeah, that is a picture of, of the plat. Yeah, because I grew up out out there. Yeah. And so, again, a very intentional choice. So there's someone who lands on your website. The first image people see is a black and white image of, of a river, the river right. plat. And so, again, a very intentional choice. I'm, I'm, I'm wondering sort of why that image and, and what is this pull towards water? Yeah, yeah, that's so that's so fascinating because I'm, uh, to be honest, I'm not a hundred percent sure, but I have some ideas. I mean, um, I grew up out in in rural Nebraska next to a, a smaller river um, that was, um, I think it was called. Gosh, I'm trying to remember what it was called. Um, I can't off the top of my head, but that was that river was my sanctuary when I was a kid. I was a, a kid who spent all the time I could outdoors in the woods by this little river. And it was a little bit of like a safe haven for me. It was a place where um, I felt most myself. One of my favorite poets is Mary Oliver. And you know she has this quote 
that she wouldn't be a poet without the natural world. That to her, um, something about like the nature, nature is um, the door to the temple. And, you know, so it's, yeah, again, it's kind of like this, this safe space and also this place of having that momentary stay against confusion, you know, which is what Emily Dickinson said poetry is, being able to find that rest and that peace. So I think water for me um, partly represents that, that, you know, sort of that peace, that stay against confusion. And, you know, with the, with the title of Chorus of the Underground Sea, I, I came to that you know, incorporating the idea of a sea into into the title, because Nebraska used to essentially be, you know, or have an underground sea. And I, you know, I wanted to have that sort of regional, um, so many of the poems take place in or around the Midwest or Nebraska, and I wanted to have that regional pull there. And, you know, again, I think there's something to me a little bit haunting thinking about an underground sea. I thought of it as sort of this like reservoir of experiences that are beneath all of us in our lives that are informing us, but that we're not always maybe aware of. That's why I was, you know, sort of using, using that um, sea metaphor there. Thinking further about this being drawn to the natural world, it's really earthy and preternatural kind of elements. I like in the poem, Northern Montana, and you're writing about a moose and uh, you say, if I were to touch his body, I'm certain it would be like stone or water. Mm-hmm. And I, I really like how, and I think this happens throughout the book, many poems are sort of wrestling with this idea of what we're made of yeah, and, and what we speak to, what our existence you know, represents. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's a, that's a really good point. That, that elemental nature um, that does keep coming up. And I wonder if you know, as I was saying before, poetry and writing occupies for me a different space than so much of the rest of our culture. It, it provides that space to engage with these questions of what we're made of. And um, again, coming back to like wrestling with meaning and how do we make meaning out of these things? For me, you know, there is so much meaning to be found in these very basic elemental forms that surround us. And I wonder if part of it's my yearning to return to that it feels like everything is changing so quickly. I wonder sometimes if my wanting to go back to, you know, the, yeah, water and stones and woods and like these very elemental things is kind of reaching for that um, almost ancestral home of something that feels not so temporary, that feels like it's a little bit more long lasting, a little bit more stable. I wonder if it's just that kind of a yearning. The problem's not- I wonder if I might ask you about vulnerability and intimacy too, because 
several of the poems are about people that are very close to you. And some of these people aren't with us, I would imagine. So the title of one poem, Uncle, is about your uncle. Right, um, right. At the Veterans Hospital is about your father. Niobrara River Valley is about your brother. Um, and there are several poems about the matriarchy in your family too. So there's that level of vulnerability and intimacy, but then there are also thematic elements you're exploring. Again, like motherhood in the poem titled Origin Story, there's this line, and I blamed you for the sacrifices you have made in my name. And I guess I'm curious, I, I feel like putting pen to paper and then publishing it is an act of extreme vulnerability, especially when I think you're putting words around emotional and psychological states like this. Right. I wonder how you feel about being that vulnerable and sharing those kind of intimate thoughts with the world. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good point. That is, um, you know, I would say that it's been a process, you know, I've, I've been writing and publishing for a while now and beginning, you know, back when I started, it was a lot harder to have that level of intimacy and vulnerability of putting, you know, really spelling out some of the more deeper sort of vulnerable thoughts or feelings about intimate relationships in my life. Over time, it got a little bit easier in part because people have surprised me by how if I do write something that's in, you know incredibly vulnerable and, and revealing you know about something perhaps in my family, people don't always respond as negatively as you might think. They don't, you know, in, in my experience at least, there there is this openness, and there's also sometimes even a little bit of gratitude. Thank you for saying how it really was, you know. So, for example, you mentioned the uncle poem. So to use that as an illustration, um, my uncle was an alcoholic uh, who essentially drank himself to death. And it was a very traumatic thing for the family, of course, to to watch him deteriorate, to try to care for him and my grandmother and to work through that. You know, when I wrote that poem, it was very revealing about some of the even specific things that he went through using like details from his life. You know, rather than being upset, the family, it the poem actually brought the family together in some ways and helped them to talk more about this is how we actually felt. These were some things that actually happened. So I think that it helped me have a little bit more appreciation for the fact that poetry, because it says sometimes the unsayable, the sort of things that we don't want to say in polite conversation, it gives people a chance to open up and connect a little bit more deeply because so many people are already thinking these things. They already know. I'm not sharing secrets that no one knows. I'm saying things that a lot of people are thinking and they're able to then come together and connect over that. And so that, that has helped me be a little bit braver and feel a little bit more comfortable with it, you know? And so I guess, you know, maybe touching on that too, you know, when I write about intimate things, you know, or I'm writing about a relationship, I'm not sharing someone else's secrets. You know, I'm sharing something that I have felt or experienced. And oftentimes someone else will come to me and say, I've also been in a similar relationship. I've also felt those things. You know, there is a difference where, of course, when you're writing about something intimate or revealing, you don't share something confidential that someone else has shared. You know, so of course there is that that boundary there. But, um, you know, when you do share personal things, you do realize how we're not so different. and, And that can be comforting in its own way. Is now a good time to ask for a little bit of a reading, please? Yeah, sure. Yeah. So I'll, I'll read two poems and I'll start with the first one that you mentioned. It's titled, I Prefer Broken Things. The chipped coffee mug, sweaters not yet mended, 
the farmhouse with no doors or windows, forever open to time drifting through, the scar above my son's eyebrow, mark of a near blinding, even your heart, I prefer it all banged up and slightly askew, that raw moment when we cannot ignore one another so well, eyes diverted, your hands stilled on the table when I touch your thigh, after you've asked if we can heal, like it's one thing, something to wish for or expect, a dawn on another shore of this ever-turning world, the chance to cross the river's thin ice, already overburdened with snow. The next one I want to read is an ekphrastic poem, which means that it's a, it's a poem that responds to a painting, and the painting in this case is by Van Gogh. It's a painting of a peasant girl in a field, and it's titled Peasant Girl. Measles, tuberculosis, cholera, diphtheria, smallpox, typhus, so many names to plague a body, and yet none of them are the reason you sit so strangely, so ill at ease. Your bonnet and apron hum with the same tone of the wheat field. Your dress sings the same blue as your eyes, which stare out into the distance, looking at nothing, wanting to see nothing. You have taken the years given to you and let them grow like sunflowers in the field, indistinguishable, all turned toward the sun. These years are now fossils above ground. The poppies can be seen in your cheeks as though you are mirrored by your surroundings, as though you yourself could be made like wheat into many different things with different names. Thank you for reading. Yeah. I'm also so grateful that you read one of the ekphrastic poems because there are several throughout the book. Yeah. And um, all in reference to paintings or drawings by Vincent van Gogh, except for one by, I think, Jacob van S. Mm-hmm. Yep. I'm feeling as if you're using those real-life paintings to sort of conjure out um, certain um, ideas that you want to explore. But it also tethers me to an experience or experiences that you must have had in your life to actually visit and see these paintings, mm-hmm. to be moved by them. You know, what was the real-world version of your encounter with um, these Van Goghs that moved you? Right. Yeah, absolutely. Um, my husband and I lived in the Netherlands for a year, and I could go to the Van Gogh Museum and see these, you know, amazing paintings in person. And it's probably two things. For one, seeing them in person was incredibly moving because you, again, like going back to the whole idea of the elemental, like the richness of the paint, the texture of it, the sense of gesture that you see when you're actually in person viewing art is its own experience that can't be replicated on a screen. So that that was very important to me, like to get to be there. But then also Van Gogh's um, biography is incredibly fascinating to me because going back to this theme that we talked about brokenness and suffering, he had a very difficult life and yet he was able to construct beauty out of that. You know, sometimes I think we have this idea of we have to be better or we have to be um, in this wonderful place before we can do something great. And he's a wonderful example of someone who, you know, even amidst his suffering, you know, he was able to create this beauty and to be productive and to create things that were that are really timeless and that, you know, reach across, um, you know, the centuries really. And so that again is kind of playing on that theme of the, you know, the timeless and things like that, that I wanted to explore. And just by spending time reading about his biography, there was so much in his life story that then went into influencing these poems. Yeah. I couldn't resist, of course, looking up all the images. It was intriguing to me to then see the visual reference 
and to reappraise my response to the poems. So I, right. I, that was great. Yeah. That's one thing that I love about ekphrastic poetry is it's really a dialogue. You know, it's a dialogue between the arts. Your perception of the painting or of the poem can shift just ever so slightly because of each one. And, um, you know, there, that's kind of just the perfect example, I think, of a conversation and how, you know, meaning just continues to be created through these connections. You were born and raised in rural Nebraska, yeah. um, probably at a time when the idea of being a professional writer maybe wasn't seen as practical. And so maybe your aspirations to a career in writing maybe seemed distant. Um, and yet you pursued them and it would seem that you're achieving whatever success means to you. And so I'm curious about the dream and then is that dream being fulfilled? Yeah, yeah, such a, a good, uh, good question because it's something that I, I think about a lot and I talk with my friends about. And you're absolutely right. You know, growing up in rural Nebraska, I didn't, I didn't have any models at all for, um, you know, what a career in writing could look like. I, you know, I had no connections and no models, and so it was really a very slow development that was born out of my my love for books. Like most people, you know, that's why they is essentially wanting to join a conversation. If you love books, you want to join that conversation by producing them yourself. And that's just a natural progression. You know, as far as, you know, if I feel that the dream is fulfilled, it's kind of a complicated one because while I'm I have worked hard and I'm, I'm proud of, of course, you know, I'm, I'm proud of my books. I think that there's always this sense in life, especially a creative life of not quite being satisfied. I've, I've read from other interviews with other people in creative fields that, you know, you never really reach a place where you feel like this is it. I've done it and I'm satisfied. It's, it's always a place of desiring to do better, desiring to do more. And, um, that, you know, that ambition is kind of never, it's never ending. And I, and I think that that's maybe partly why, you know, when we are talking about embracing or accepting brokenness or struggle, because, you know, I have come to realize with this path of a creative life that struggle will always be part of it. I'm never going to be 100% satisfied. I'm always going to be wanting to do something more or, you know, feeling like, um, I want to do better. I think that that's just a natural, a natural part of it. 
I am always curious, just how, how did you get here? What was your life like as, as, <laughs> as a child? Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, so the short answer of how I got here would be failure. That's really the short answer. Really, really. I mean, I do. I am a big believer in learning through failures, and that that is what um, the creative life is 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 trying. And so, essentially, um, you know, my my childhood was that, as I mentioned, that I loved books and I loved reading. And my parents were generally supportive, but they also were, of course, like most parents that, you know, you need to get a job that'll pay the bills and that writing can't pay the bills. And so, you know, you can't really do this. So to, you know, what, what I ended up doing is that um, I ended up majoring in philosophy. I wasn't sure what I wanted to do. I knew I wanted to be a writer, but I wasn't sure how to make that happen. And while I was um, getting my philosophy degree, I had a mentor in poetry. Um, it was a, a local poet. He was really helpful in teaching me essentially about not just writing, but the creative life of paying attention to the world and being responsive to it and immersing yourself in other writers' works. I feel like he was always so focused on the work itself rather than external markers of success. And that was really helpful for me because it teaches you patience and so, you know, from there, I ended up getting, like you mentioned in the bio, um, my master's degree in English literature. And, you know, during that time, I just kept writing, kept sending, you know, I started to, after that, sending my work out to literary journals and magazines. I ended up transitioning, you know, starting to write more fiction than poetry um, a little bit later when I started to just feel like I wanted to to sort of have a larger canvas to to tell a longer form story that was also a period of you know failure i mean there was a lot a lot of things that i wrote that have never been published a lot of time spent and um, a lot of time spent studying things like story structure studying other books deconstructing them you know um, essentially like reading a book and like breaking it down like where where is the exposition what is the dialogue doing here you know where exactly is this scene going to have a climax how does it end how is there movement between these chapters you know so just deconstructing essentially treating a book the same way you would treat um, looking at a table and you want to look at the joints you want to look at how they put it together did they use wood glue did they use screws things like that so being very almost being very technical about it that helped to educate me a lot about thinking about how do I put books together. Um, for me, I have always learned the most from that, you know, from um, studying books very closely with a close eye. And then also as much as possible, trying to surround myself with other like-minded people who, you know, who are also reading and writing. You know, we try to help each other. There is a degree, I think, in the creative fields, a little bit of the blind leading the blind, because the very nature of creativity is you don't know what you're doing exactly. You don't know where you're going. You don't know how it'll turn out. You have to sort of have this this openness as you go. And um, you know, I, for anyone who who is wanting to enter a creative field or to do creative work, I would just encourage them to be as compassionate toward themselves as they can, because it is difficult. It's really difficult. And for me, I've had a lot of dark years where I felt like I don't, you know, I don't know where this is going to go or if it'll go anywhere at all. And when I mentioned that poetry mentor, what he really taught me was returning to the work itself. So even if you don't know if it's going to go anywhere, um, 
you just go back to, to the work itself. You almost treat the work itself as something that wants to be made and put your care and attention into it. And I know that's, for me, that's a frustrating answer because I want things to turn out. And so I totally understand the frustration with that. Um, I can relate, but it, it's, it is part of, part of the process. I would imagine agents and publishers have a different expectation and desire. Oh, exactly. Exactly. Right. Yes, there is that. I, you know, I don't know if I would say conflicting goals, but the creative process isn't a machine. It's not. And so as much as possible, you have to stand up for it for yourself. You know, there's, there's no one else that's going to really be your advocate in that way. Um, there are people who will help you along the way. Absolutely. There'll be people who support you in different ways or maybe partner with you in different ways, but it does always, it, it can be a little bit lonely at times because you do have to advocate for yourself. Being a poet, a novelist, and I don't know, a short story writer, an essayist, um, there are multiple forms of writing and yeah. I sense that you have you know, traveled between all of them. And I wonder how that is to be a writer that does travel through all of those forms. Right. Yeah. Well, I don't recommend it <laughs> <I don't>. <laughs> <laughs> um, because it's, you know, each form has its own demands and to try to learn the demands of each form can be quite rigorous. And so sometimes I get mad at myself and I think, oh, you should have picked this and then just stuck with it. And, um, you know, for, for me, though, I think the the reason behind it, the reason why I have, you know, written in all these different forms is is partly informed by my reading. You know, I often will, you know, become really interested in, in writing what I've been reading lately. And um, each form has its own limitations. And so sometimes I'll get tired of those limitations and I'll want to try out a different one. Um, but I will say that it is, it does require a lot of time. And that's why I jokingly said I don't really recommend it because it's it's hard enough to, to try to write in one form that you know, to learn different ones um, can be very time consuming and, and a lot of work. So, yeah. Hey, I heard you want to leave this place where we grew up. This old town, just put it all behind. Remember you and I would always find somewhere to hide when we were kids so we could see. River's gonna cry when you're gone gonna cry when you're gone, 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 gone. River's gonna cry when you're gone, 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 gone. River's gonna cry when you're gone, 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 gone. So in our email correspondence, uh, just as we were talking about some of the details for our conversation today, you mentioned 
fun local things associated oh, with the literary yeah. scene. <laughs> yeah. So, well, it's it's kind of a, a recurring thing, but I did want to mention that um, favorite bookstore in town, the Dundee Book Company, which I know you know of as well, they're, they're going to be doing their summer reading series again. And um, one of my professor, former professors from Creighton, she has a new new book coming out. She'll be one of the first readers in May. And so I just, I did want to share the good news about that, that, you know, those readings will be returning the the summer reading series with the Dundee Book Company. So for anyone who might be interested in readings, one of my friends has a book coming out in May that I wanted to share the good news of. Lydia Kang, um, one of her historical mystery novels is coming out and it's called The Half-Life of Ruby Fielding. I feel like Omaha has a great um, literary community of people who are really supporting each other. And I, I just wanted to spread that good news. I'm just wondering if there's anything on your mind, any sort of itch that you're wrestling with. Right. Yeah. I'm glad that we talked a little bit about failure and we talked a little bit about that frustration um, that's sort of inherent to the creative process. Cause that is something that's been on my mind a lot lately. And so, so yeah, I feel like we already, you know, kind of touched on that, but that was, that's really something that I feel like that I'm working through now. And that one thing that I, I've realized that um, writing careers can be such a roller coaster where, you know, maybe you're getting things done and things seem to be going well for a while. And then before you know it, things are drying up and learning how to, to handle those ups and downs is is a challenge, I think, for everyone. It does just remind me of of the need to give grace to ourselves and to other people and to be supportive um, because we never know what someone else might be going through and you know how difficult it can be to handle those disappointments. I was looking online to try and buy your latest novel, Those Who Return. Yeah. Only to realize it's not it's not out yet. It's not out it's- yet. No, I know, I know. Yeah. So tell us, and- can you tell us something a little bit about that? Just sure. Yeah. So it's um. So those who return is my second novel, and it's set out in the Nebraska Sandhills. It's about a psychiatrist who works at a children's home out in the Sandhills, and she ends up discovering the body of one of her patients, and she ends up joining the investigation to help solve this, while also through the novel, she's sort of working through some traumas herself and trying to figure out how to forgive herself for some things that happened in her past. Um, The book, so right now, the book is slated to be published in the UK and Australia in April, but it doesn't yet have a publisher here in the U.S., so it won't yet be available in the U.S. Um, for the time being. But hopefully, fingers crossed, hopefully in the future. My guest today has been author and poet Cassandra Montag. Cassandra, thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure. That's the end of this week's show. You can listen again to this show and others by subscribing to the podcast at livesradioshow.com and find us on social media at livesradioshow. 
The music playing you in and playing you out each week was created specially for the show by Andrew Bailey. I'm your host, Stuart Chittenden, and this is Live's radio show and podcast. Join me next week for fresh voices and diverse perspectives on culture, community, and more. Thank you.